This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The following is a sponsored program. Zoomer Radio and MZ Media Incorporated do not endorse any of the statements or opinions made by the contributors. We have a capacity to understand, to make choices, to tune in to who we really are, and to make our choices from that perspective, from our inner knowledge and from an inner trust. And when we choose to allow someone else to become responsible for our own healing process, we become less powerful. Welcome to The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Busson, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. Today, we'll hear how digital technology can help in a public health crisis. We'll learn about personal responsibility and the path to well-being. We'll explore solo pleasure when coupled. And lastly, we'll discuss how to get rid of unwanted belly fat. But first, a little bit of business. Jack Nathan Health offers Canadians convenient care with 74 multidisciplinary clinics located within Walmart stores. The largest ever Jack Nathan Health Medical Centre is now open in Vaughan, Ontario at 8300 Highway 27. The new 8300 square foot clinic offers integrated services for the whole family, including family medicine, physiotherapy and chiropractic, chronic pain management, massage and a registered dietitian. There's also an on-site Dynacare blood laboratory plus same-day referrals, walk-in appointments and a new annual health assessment option. Jack Nathan Health is a one-stop shop for proactive health management. For more information, visit jacknathanhealth.com. Our first guest, George Barakat, co-founded Jack Nathan Health in 2006, where he cultivated the company from a lean startup to a leader in Canadian healthcare, serving over 2 million patients across Canada. George has helped shape a new healthcare format by improving access to quality primary care in state-of-the-art medical clinics in retail environments across the country. Today, George is an authority in healthcare and in business and has traveled extensively nationally and internationally, building and sustaining important global relationships and partners. Welcome back to the show, sir. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you, Jamie? It's uh, good to see you and you're looking well. Thank you. You as well. We're both okay, but there's a lot of people out there who aren't okay. Uh, and, you know, the buzzword is if we're not. If we're not talking about uh, his royal orangeness down in the U.S., we're talking about coronavirus and public health scares. Uh, but your expertise is uh, health technology, and I thought it would be fun for you to come in today and sort of discuss all the ways in which the technology we have now can help us deal with these public health um, emergencies. Are you up for it? Well, let's get it started. You know what? You you mentioned something that is very telling of the state of affairs that we are in with regards to this corona or uh, virus that um, we lived through back in the day when we had the SARS yeah. virus, which the corona is very different and very similar to the SARS virus, uh, being that this is a true zoonotic uh, episodic incident with regards to how the virus actually trans formed and transferred from animal to human. Right. So I'm um, happy to help and happy to share what knowledge I have and what we're doing uh, in Jack Nathan to help not just combat this, but create awareness. 
Right. So how do you see technology impacting public health, which is a little different than, than what the clinics do? We're sort of looking at, at sort of a global picture. What, what do you see? Well, we're definitely in a digital age and, you know, we're at the point where there is instantaneous information gathering and, of course, dissemination. Because of the ability to gather and interpret information faster, we can mobilize faster. The technology allows governments to give their citizens better information faster and hopefully more efficiently and hopefully cheaper. Right. So the crisis, and uh, given that we are in a crisis, can be responded to more efficiently, faster, and again, hopefully uh, cheaper and potentially saving more lives. The risks are, and this is a big risk, you could be living in a country in a population that isn't capable of digital communications, and there will be gaps, and it might be expensive to put the programs into place. Therefore, you would not have that same delivery and, and uh, sharing of information that you would hope globally uh, that you could shorten the reaction times right. a lot more quickly. Well, I think that's part of the problem with the coronavirus. You know, I think by the time the North Americans were aware of it or had it on their radar, they were able to cope with it. We do have the technology in place. We can disseminate that information. But when you have a country like China, for example, vast population and some of them still living in poverty. And, you know, although they have, you know, cities of millions of people that you've probably never heard of before, you know, we think of Shanghai, but, you know, they have such a huge population. I think there's 50 cities of over 10 million there. And, you know, mobilizing and, and getting the information out to, to, to their constituency is is vastly different. And in this age of, you know, traveling here and there, I mean, we can be halfway across the world in a blink uh, as well. You can see how these uh, emergencies can evolve. Well, just as a side note, uh, where Wuhan is in Baidehe, the province of Baidehe, yeah. we were there probably two and a half years ago where we were uh, looking to help architect a medical city in Baidehe. So it's ironic that that virus started there, but more importantly, um, I think there is they they were on the right path to putting it in that uh, location. Right. They realized that there could be a potential problem looming throughout China, and they had the wherewithal in that specific location. So uh, more to come. You never know. We may be back there sooner than later uh, to help them achieve their goals. Right. Let's let's talk about SARS and, and the coronavirus and, and sort of the tangible examples of how technology is be- being implemented. What, what are you seeing? What are you hearing? Well, you know, I think the, the most important learning that we could take away from SARS is... Uh, the technology piece, and it's allowed hospitals to deal with SARS and develop new protocols. And protocols are important. Uh, When SARS hit, it was uh, literally a pandemic, epidemic of proportionate or a proportionate size, and we weren't weren't ready for it. And it was a true test when, if you remember way back on how many people were in the hospital, how many people were quarantined, and what the protocols were accordingly. You could see where the first case, when it was developed, I believe, here in Sunnybrook, or was it... Uh, I can't remember if it was Sunnybrook or St. Mike's. It was one of the two. Sunny, I believe it was Sunnybrook. I can't yep. remember. And instantly, that person went into quarantine, wasn't allowed to walk. Where did you communicate? Where was your travel? Who did you interact with? Right. Uh, we need to bring everybody in for testing. Where in the past it was, we need to quarantine this person, don't know where this virus came from, can't understand how it's, how it's uh, uh, manipulating and mastizing uh, throughout our population. Today, we have learned a lot from that epidemic, and I can see it, and you can feel it. 
Right. Uh, you know, will it spread more? Will we have more entrants from the Wuhan province uh, coming into Canada, predominantly in Ontario? Uh, probably. Uh, but I think through technology and through our learning experiences, we're better equipped to handle it. And it's very apparent. And you can see how much the hospitals have stepped up. Right. All right. So let's let's talk about the, the ways in which technology sort of advanced and how it's going to help us treat a, a public health crisis like, like Corona. What strikes me is, you know, in a large country like Canada and like China, getting to people remotely and treating them, you know, technology can really help with that. Uh, it can. And... Uh, just part of treating, and we can talk about treating, isolating, and quarantine. Yeah. China is building hospitals rapidly in, in order to treat patients. If you look at a simple tool that obviously is mainstream today, video conferencing, this will allow doctors to diagnose patients who are remote. Imagine if you had a world of doctors that can communicate with other doctors. And it, it is happening today, but it was more prevalent in saying, we have this, let's video conference, show you specs, download, share. Digital files would speed the communication process between frontline responders and those with information on how to diagnose and treat potential patients. So if we were to have that openness, that digital sharing, that communication availability on a global scale... I think we would be a lot quicker to respond and through tools, and we'll, you know, we can touch on this later, um, that we're moving forward, specifically AI, we could build algorithms that we could put in place that would not just be effective, they could actually determine what the correct vaccine to develop would be. And, and going through, like, even, even quantum uh, computing would allow uh, for speedier uh, development of vaccines, for example, just because the the ability to compute, you know, to go through all the permutations without having to test it, you know, just to, to, to do that thought work that rapidly has got to be helpful in, in treating it. Oh, absolutely. And I think we're going to get there. I agree. Even if you look at it from the other side, which is, okay, so the idea of a highly contagious virus is very scary, right? And the thought of being able to convey information from a governmental perspective, right? To say, this is what it is, this is what it isn't. I mean, th there's that ability too, right? Yeah, so let's look at how we share information today or how a public health crisis comes out today. It's via radio, television, newspaper, or if you're on some sort of social media. Right. And if you think about it, all these pandemics you're going to hear last on social, uh, social media and first on television and radio because it's not really the agenda. However, picture a world where now information, emergency information, can be sent out instantaneously over cell phones and social media. And digital messaging allows for more two-way information sharing. Right. That's a whole new world. Right. So if we can get our heads around that then, the, you know, we can obviously look at not just, you know, when you get on your phone, those emergency right, warnings. I was going to say, exactly, when, when there's a child missing, you know, right. they can get that information out within seconds. If How many people, when that first came out, were like, oh, you woke me up at 2 a.m. or whatnot? Yeah. And now, obviously, we've realized the value of it for how many... Uh, incidents it's prevented and how many lives it's saved, right. that this is amazing. But right? It doesn't have to be to that extreme. Sorry, Jamie. It doesn't have to be to that extreme uh, of here's a beep, here's a buzzer. However, I think that channeling that information news and once you have that shared information on a global level, there should be a global way of in sharing information so that everybody has the same messaging, same purposeful, purposeful information and what we're doing about it. And and I, I think, you know, if you're able to, if people had faith that you could disseminate the information that quickly 
and that accurately, you're going to prevent a lot of fear and a lot of ignorance and a lot of stigma. So that if you understood, you know, this is the way the virus uh, transmutes, this is the way it's going to uh, transmit. So you you can get it by coughing on somebody. You can't get it from being in the same room. You know, like it's if, if people had that type of information, you know, information is king and it helps people from making bad decisions and allows them to make good decisions and, and what in and of itself would help stop spread the, the illnesses. Yeah, definitely knowledge is power. And you know what, if you have the power to... Uh, prevent uh, your family being put in harm's way or loved ones or individuals and you have that information that's streaming concurrently with what the solution is, it's a game changer. Right. Okay, so let's move. Okay, so we've talked about isolation and, and, and dealing with the patient, but let's look at it from the practitioner point of view, first responders and also uh, doctors who are you know looking to treat the virus. Uh, how will the technology help them? Well, you know, for first responders today, what we're accustomed to is that they have to go through, obviously, training. Right. And they get their information and they get their education on the go and when they come back and what their next mission is going to be. Digital files would speed the communication process between frontline responders and those with information on how to diagnose and treat potential patients. Imagine a world where you could be constantly video conferencing with those first responders for visual symptoms and you could confirm them in real time. Right. That so, would be amazing. But again, that's that's upending our entire infrastructure to say we're communicating, here's the video, we're on our way to the hospital, we're, you know, here's what we have to deal with, sending it out to a group and, you know, there is technology in place and we should talk about that on what that could look like. But it's also it's also uh, you know, the it's the dissemination of information between the the people that are treating and the people with knowledge on how to treat, but it's also the train being able to train remotely too, right? So if you if you have you know it's easy in Toronto there's all kinds of doctors so there's all kinds of people researching you, you can get people to to hospitals, but in the rural setting or in or in poorer countries being able to have first responders get that sort of information and deal with where the illnesses are probably starting or or, or passing around, to me that's got to be a game changer. Invaluable, invaluable, and I think we're going to get there. Let's talk about some of the existing technology that that is available now, uh, or that we're just sort of t- touching upon, uh, that will help us in in dealing with hopefully not pandemics, but epidemics. So let's let's talk about that from what we touched on earlier right. with regards to AI. Imagine a world where AI and faster digital dissemination of information would certainly lead to the faster development of vaccines. Right. In this day of anti-vaccination, you know, it's my opinion and lots of people's opinion that not only would the technology help and perhaps help to circulate accurate information, but we could be a lot more responsive and a lot quicker to uh, develop vaccines and vaccinations for that. uh, You know, you, you, you said, how could we use current tools and existing tools and future tools? One of the the items and uh, that they're toying with is blockchain and blockchain for anyone that doesn't really understand it for for the quick definition is uh, the av- the ability to share information and distribute information rather than the current ecosystem of copying information right. where you have information that adds to other information and is concurrently composed on different computers, but everybody has visibility into it. And at the end, there's a transaction. The transaction could be a vaccine. 
healthcare. Um, there has never been a more needing, I guess, business model or model in general in our society than healthcare that could use the sharing of information from so many professionals, first responders, physicians, surgeons, that if they pull all their knowledge together and it's available, and it's available not just for viewing, for education, but there is an actual action plan at the end of what that could look like and determined by an algorithm or AI, that could be the absolute game changer. On the current concurrent side, there's something that will culminate around healthcare, and I'll, maybe we'll use that as a topic for next time, called Omnichannel. Yep. Do your homework on that one. I'm sure you're familiar from a marketing standpoint. Again, yeah. it's the culmination of the patient journey from start to finish could be the epitome of what Omnichannel was created for as well. Well, let's let's talk about Omnichannel. You're, you're back in a few months. And sure. why, don't, why don't we say that's what we're going to talk about next time you're on? Oh, I'd, it'd, it'd be our pleasure. And how that actually would be useful for healthcare, incredible. We've got to take a short break, but we will be right back on The Tonic. Do you worry about your cardiac health? Need to reduce your harmful cholesterol? New Roots Herbal offers natural supplement formulations to help reduce elevated blood lipid levels, help keep your cholesterol in check, and support cardiovascular well-being. Discover organic cardiac heart tincture, cholesterol, and slow-release CoQ10, natural ingredients and guaranteed potency for healthier days and a brighter future. Let's make life better. Find these and other New Roots Herbal products exclusively at quality health food stores. To ensure these products are right for you, always read and follow the label. And for more information, visit NewRootsHerbal.com. Vital Directives is a center committed to helping people ignite their innate healing power and remove the barriers of fear that keep them in pain. Through changing their client's mindset and teaching them to connect with their body, the Vital Directives step-by-step process helps them focus, feel safe, and get immediate relief. Their process involves removing the physical limitations induced by chronic pain while creating personalized, high-level self-care and preventative measures. They believe that significantly reducing chronic pain is just the first step. Through powerful physical exercises and mindset shifts, coupled with solid support system, they inspire people to transform from the inside out. For more information, visit their website at vitaldirectives.com. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. Roxandra Mitria is a mind-body coach, author, and the founder of Vital Directives, a leading center for vibrant and healthy living, preventative health, wellness, growth, and rejuvenation. The Vital Directives tagline, Awaken Your Body, Celebrate Life, is her motto. Roxandra has an unwavering belief in each person's inherent capacity for healing. Having had her own experience with the limitations created by chronic pain, she created a unique process that allowed her to heal her body. Roxandra has dedicated her professional life to teaching her clients the process that will ignite their innate healing capacity, significantly reducing chronic pain while developing the skills to create and maintain pain-free active lives. Welcome back to the show. Thank you, Jamie. Always great to be here. So we were talking a little bit before we went on air, and we were talking about how much you're excited about this notion because it's so important to the work that you do, and that is personal responsibility, right? Yes, Yes. So let's talk about what happens when you give away your personal responsibility, when you when you cede it to somebody else. Do you see that happening? 
Yes, it happens quite often, and it is a, a weakening of everything that we are. We have a capacity to understand, to make choices, to tune in to who we really are, and to make our choices from that perspective, from our inner knowledge, and from an inner trust. And when we choose to allow someone else to become responsible for our own healing process, we become less powerful. We become weaker emotionally, spiritually, energetically, mentally, and ultimately physically, because now our power to heal, our capacity to heal, our inherent ability to heal our bodies resides somewhere outside ourselves. Right. So we have no control, mm-hmm. right? So with responsibility, you're taking control yes. of the process. And I think what you're saying, and, but you're speaking even of health practitioners, right? Yes, absolutely. But there must be sort of a fine line. I mean, there's a difference between listening to advice or following a regimen or taking medications mm-hmm. and giving up responsibility. What, what, what's the difference? The difference is actually pretty clear. This is how I see it. This is how I apply it to myself. And this is how I teach my clients to do it. If you had an injury and now you're trying to heal it and things don't really work, or if you're trying to heal your body from a condition, you go and you do due diligence. You go and you interview health practitioners, but you interview them to see who is the person most in tune with who you are in order to guide you through a healing process. Okay. So then you don't interview just one person. You go and you see a few Practitioners. I include here medical doctors and physiotherapists and osteopaths and chiropractors and naturopaths and trainers, yoga teachers, Pilates teachers, doesn't matter, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever you need, you go and inter- interview a few people. And then you go home with all this information. Now you can make an informed decision. And this is a process that I use for myself and I teach my clients to do it as well. You close your eyes and now you envision person one, person two, person three, their facilities, their programs and everything you know about them. And you have them in your energetic field, in your mind's eye, lined up. And then you go and you visit them and you see which scenario lifts you up. Mm -hmm. If you think of that facility, that practitioner, that method, do you feel uplifted? Do you feel hopeful or you feel a dread and a heaviness in your body? So is this an emotional test or a test of trust or is it more about an intellectual exercise in determining which, which, whether the logic of what that person is espousing makes sense to what you want to do? I think it's a process that involves all of it. It involves everything, every aspect of who we are. It involves our intellect, our mind, because we went and we gathered the information. It involves our emotional responses to interacting with different people. As you know, you meet a person and you click with them immediately. There's an inner knowing, right? A part of us resonates with a part of that person so we can create a good yeah, relationship. But, but some of us have better intuition than others, right? And some of us have a better knowledge base than others, right? And we're talking about health, which is a pretty yes. important topic. Yes. So I guess you can see why people fall into the trap of giving up their responsibilities, right? For sure. We're not being taught that we have this capacity to discern for ourselves. Most of us have no faith in our inner knowing, in our inner capabilities. And the truth is that we all know what the right decision is. It's just that we don't maybe have the courage to acknowledge that we actually know it. So you think it's a question of inner faith in our 
understanding that's causing us to cede this responsibility or is there something else at play? You know, we can think of it as inner fate, but if that's all that we're making it be, I think that this can be a, a disservice to a lot of people because there's the word faith right. in there. No, I, I truly believe that there is something that we're all capable of, of discerning from this place of trust in ourselves. To my mind, I think it's the system that sort of pushes us to give up our, our responsibility because... It's so difficult to get an appointment with a doctor. It's so difficult and time-consuming to sit in an office waiting to see that practitioner. The choices are so limited because doctors are so busy. Maybe there's somebody you want to see, but that person has a waiting list of three months. I think it's time and the complexity of some of the things that people are dealing with that causes us to sort of say, okay, I give up. I'm just going to go to this person and they're just going to make me better because really I don't have any other choice. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you see that or, or is that just yeah, me no. intellectualizing what's happening? I think I think that that's a real phenomenon. I don't know if the if it's the system. I think that, yes, we've created cer- certain situations, you know, all of us collectively, but I think that ultimately as we're not being taught that we have this capacity, that we are responsible for our own well-being and our own lives, we're lacking something in the equation. And we can be pushed by the system, let's say the system, we can be pushed to accept care from someone rather than another person that we cannot get into. But ultimately, even that comes down to, do I just go on this path that's been carved for me by someone else? Or do I just go and I pay attention and I see how I resonate with it? So what does it look like when you give away your power? Like, How do I know if I've done it? Well, let's say that you are being prescribed a regime of exercises and you're going to a physiotherapist and you've been given some pills, right? Um, anti-inflammatories or whatever. And now you go and you start to do them all. And... You don't like the the exercises because something in your body is telling you that you're hurting yourself right. while doing them. You're taking the pills and you feel lousy. Right. And then the people you're interacting with, they don't really resonate with you. So you're left with with a um, feeling of dread when you're trying to when you want to go there and when you leave that that facility you feel weaker emotionally, physically, spiritually, energetically, everything. That's not a good choice for you. That's your body and your mind working together to tell you that that's not the right path. I believe, and I tell this my clients when they come to see me for the first time and they're not even my clients yet. I tell them as we're doing the body strategy session to see if we are a good fit. I tell them if we decide to work together, this process has to enhance your life from the very first session you're doing with me. Mm-hmm. If you live here and you don't feel that that's a thing that lifts you up, that makes you feel better from the very beginning, that maybe you just need to keep looking for someone else to work with. Okay. How does it feel when you keep your power? How do I know if I've kept responsibility for my health? You go and you take a class, right? Let's say with a new in a new facility yeah. with a new trainer. Because mm-hmm. I know that you train a lot. I you do. like to train. You like to spin. You like to do all these things. I do. And you go to a class one day and you walk in and the energy is not quite right. The instructions feel like they're falling all over your around you, but nothing really makes a change in you. And you start to feel more frustration and you walk out of that class and you go home and you don't feel don't feel good about it. Nothing in you wants to go back. I'm not talking about the process where you go and you, you're 
you're lifted up by the the person you're working with and all you feel is that you're physically limited right now but something in them motivates you and you're connecting with them and your energies mix and you work together mm-hmm. and you leave that place and you're like whoa okay this is what i have to work on and then maybe you start to feel depressed that you're not there yet right. that's a different process yeah. but now you know that there's something you want to stick with you want to go back you want to pursue that's you keeping your power because you've chosen uh, a circumstance a practitioner a method that lifts you up. Let's say you've, for whatever reason, you, you've given up your power. Is that the end of it? I mean, once you've given up your power, are, are you done for or can you get your power back? You can always get your power back. You can always get your power back. And in order to do that, you need to be willing to sit by yourself quietly. And if you like to write or to journal, to put things down on or to doodle, whatever, and then you go to a process where you put all the things where you feel not at peace with how they are. Right. That facility, that method, that um, program of exercises, that trainer, that whatever it is, that massage therapist, or you know, you put them down and you just sit with them a little bit and then you decide if, you, if that is enhancing your life or not, if that is lifting you up or is making you feel not that great about the whole thing. And then you just sit with them there you can of course you can call the person and change the appointments go to someone else find something else but to energetically let's say take your power away you can just imagine the stream of energy that's flowing between the two of you and you just start to pull it back and then you follow with the physical act of not going there of interrupting that i I would imagine it's a difficult thing to do to sort of say okay i've given up my power now i'm taking it back if you've been taking medications for a certain amount of time, if you've been under the care of a physician or another health practitioner, mm-hmm. uh, it would be a difficult thing to distinguish between having to take your power back or staying on the course because of, you know, your, your condition is so serious that you, you need to mm-hmm. certain medications, for example. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you see that all the time. Yeah, but taking medication or not, that has nothing to do with, you know, with taking your power back. I believe that each one of us has been given from the beginning everything we need in order to live the best version in any moment, even when we are in a dire stress situation with our health. The fact that we got there doesn't mean that in the moment we don't have what it takes to take our power back. Maybe physically we're not strong, but our power is our power. Our power has to do with our inner knowledge and with everything that makes us who we are. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. (laughs) Thank you, Jamie. We've got to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss solo pleasure when coupled on The Tonic. You're a genuine health enthusiast listening to this show today. And Activation Products is your dream come true when it comes to living a very long, pain-free, energized life. Your body's craving heirloom nano and micronutrients that you'll use to elevate your whole body's health in ways you had no idea were possible. Activation makes all this possible no matter how old or young you are. The precious time, energy, and money you invest to be healthy is taken very seriously by Activation. It's their responsibility to deliver to you the most efficacious health products available in the world today. People consistently report back the most beautiful health results when they daily consume products from Activation. Treat yourself now and find out what it's like to live in a luxurious body, making every day a joy to be alive. Go to activationproducts.com and subscribe for the most important health information and products. Or call 1-866-271-7595. 
The tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their liquid greens chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy. Enjoy the detox. Enjoy the great taste. Purely natural liquid greens. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. My next guest, Carlisle Jansen, is the founder of Good For Her, Toronto's premier sexuality shop and workshop centre in Toronto. And she's the producer of the Toronto International Porn Festival. She's also the author of two books, including Sex Yourself. Watch her TEDx Toronto talk and educational videos at carlislejansen.com. And if you want to reach out to her, she can be uh, gotten to at carlisle at goodforher.com. How are you? I'm well, thanks. And you? Good. So we're revisiting some articles that you wrote in the past. And this yeah. one's a particularly juicy one. Oh, good. I'm glad you find it juicy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> From 2017. And that is solo pleasure when coupled. And what we're talking about is masturbation when you are in a monogamous relationship. Yeah. Uh, so there's two ways of putting it. One is the cryptic, polite phrase, and then the other right. is the, to the point. And I'm yeah. a to the point kind okay, of guy. Okay, great, good. So is it okay to masturbate if you're in a monogamous relationship? Is that cool? Well, you know, there's lots of challenges we have around masturbation in general. I mean, some people think that masturbation is wrong, but I'm of the belief that masturbation is a very healthy activity and that you always have yourself as a sexual partner. Right. You know, you may have other partners that come and go and they might go because they're traveling. They might go because they're ill. Um, they might go because you might break up and the, you always have yourself and that it's a great way to feel relief and pleasure and explore. I think Woody Allen said it in Annie Hall, it's sex with somebody you love, right? Right, yeah, let's hope so anyways. And for some people, it's the only way that they can orgasm. Sometimes it's hard to orgasm with a partner. And so um, doing that on your own gives you that, um, that opportunity. And one thing that also I found interesting was that a 2009 study said that masturbation helped increase self-esteem. Really? And many participants, yeah, where you f- you know your body, you feel good about it, you pleasure it, you take charge of it, that's bound to improve your self-esteem. I would have thought there would have been a little bit of stigma. I mean, in and of itself, and I agree with right. that. I, I, yeah. I don't mean it's necessarily my mindset, yeah, yeah. but I could see how somebody might feel a little bit of shame for masturbating, particularly if they were in a relationship, it's kind of like, well, why are you doing that if you have a partner? Right. right? Well, I think there's a couple things going on. I think there's an assumption that you must be a loser or it must mean that your partner is not attracted to you or you're not doing it right or something. Right. As opposed to sometimes I want to go to a movie on my own. (laughs) Sometimes I want to work out on my own. Sometimes I want to spend a day on my own. Why can't I also have some time to just pleasure myself on my own where I don't have to worry about a partner's needs. I don't have to take them into consideration. I don't have to explain anything. I don't have to spend, you know, sometimes it takes a lot longer when you have sex with a partner. This is really easy, quick, fast, or you can make it long, but it's um, it, it's private time. Yep. 
So not that it should really matter, mm. but is this a, a common thing for people in, in monogamous relationships to do? So it seems to be. Another study said that 45% of women and 85% of men who are living with a partner still engage in solo sex. And then, of course, on top of that, there's also you can have solo sex when you're partnered. Right. Um, so sometimes you can watch each other, you can teach each other, or it can be um, a fun way to tease. Uh, it can be a fun way to connect over text, over Skype, FaceTime, you know. It can be part of what you do together, even though you're doing it apart. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Why do you think there's such a dichotomy between males and females? Is it socialization? Yes. Is that, is that, is that why women don't as frequently uh, as men? I think, it's, I think it's two things. I think one is socialization and permission. I think that generally, you know, penises are on the outside of the body. And I think that boys learn to touch it a lot easier, more easily. They figure it out when they're peeing. They're like, oh, it feels good. Whereas it takes girls a little bit more to try and figure that out. And I think that sometimes there's a desire thing, right? Like yeah. I do think sometimes that... Not always. It doesn't always fall on gender lines, but sexual desire tends to be a little bit higher among males. And so the desire to pleasure yourself is going to be a little bit higher. That makes sense. In your article, you explain that solo sex can help with sexual challenges. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So um, in particular, I find like, so for, I work with a fair number of people who have challenges, say with orgasm. So it's a great way to practice things on your own where you don't have a partner staring at you. Is this working? Right, yeah. Come on. <laughs> yeah, we're supposed to be here. Are we there yet? Yeah, exactly. Right. So you don't have that additional pressure. It also, for people who are um, working with their erections, so maybe they have a hard time getting an erection, they have a hard time maintaining it, they ejaculate more quickly than they want to, that practicing things on your own and figuring out, okay, so what works, what doesn't work. Uh, there's something that I often recommend with um, on penises is a stop and start technique so that you, you press on the top and base of the penis somewhere along the shaft, and that will help de- delay ejaculation. Or even practicing mindfulness for people of all genders is a really great way to feel the pleasure, right. notice the sensations in, the moment. in yeah. the moment. And you do that, you practice that on your own so that when you're with a partner, you then feel a little more confident, you know what you're doing, and it, you know the erotic moment can still happen without you sort of like, oh, I'm supposed to do this, and then I do that, which yeah. takes away from some of that excitement. And candidly, you might be in a relationship where maybe your partner isn't necessarily necessarily fulfilling your needs. So I would imagine that, you know, solo sex might help in that situation, right? We're all creatures of desire and we all want to have those feelings, right? We do. And, you know, our partners aren't always interested in what we're interested in um, uh, at the same times or whatever's going on. Again, you know, there's sometimes they're away or they're ill. Or they have Um, different energies, right? They have different energy, yeah. So um, you can enjoy your fantasies on your own. You can practice different things that maybe you want to bring into your relationship. You can um, try different things just like you might decide, like, you know, I'm not interested in seeing that movie. Why don't you you go see that movie, I'll do this movie, right? Right. We can enjoy different things. And our partner, you know, when we expect them to meet all of our needs and be completely on par with everything at every time, I think we set up really high expectations and um, either a lot of pressure and or a lot of disappointment. Also, I would think, you know, it's morally better to be on your own than it would be to go to a different partner unless you have an arrangement with your right. existing partner sure. to, yeah. to pleasure yourself on your own I think mm-hmm. is, is much 
I guess, morally preferable than, than cheating on your spouse or, or, you know, finding sexual gratification with another partner, right? Which Yeah. I mean, you know, unfortunately, some people even still see solo pleasure as a form of cheating. Yeah. Um, yeah. Some people feel very threatened by it. And that is something that... Uh, is really unfortunate. And I can see how it happens, though, when, say, you feel like, well, you're pleasuring yourself all the time, but you're not interested in me. Right. <laughs> right? You're yeah. getting off, but you're, you know, you don't want to come out even, you know, to go and visit friends. You don't yeah. want to hang out and go and see the game or whatever. Right. right? Yeah. So certainly when it impacts or if, it, if it's replacing your, right. your, your couple time, sure. it's yeah. probably unhealthy, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. If it's taking away from your time with your partner, whether it be sexually or otherwise, then yes, that's a challenge. But sometimes, I, yeah, unfortunately, I mean, masturbation has a bad rap. So a lot of people think that it is cheating. And, and sometimes we take it personally. We think, like, I should be enough. Right. I, you know, why do you desire sex even though I'm here? Like, right. Well, I don't, I don't feel like engaging it with you. Well, there's or no, there's you're no easy way to have time. that conversation, yeah, right? I yeah, mean, like yeah. honestly, there really yeah. isn't. It's yeah, and it, it's it's a hard conversation, but one we have to have. I find you hot. I want to have sex with you sometimes, and sometimes not. Right. I think also like eating into the couple time, but there's also sort of it's not necessarily the masturbation, but maybe what goes with it. So, for example, a porn addiction mm-hmm. or somebody, you know, like if you're sort of off on your own or your own little yeah. island sure. doing your own thing and there's, yeah. there's there's no emotional connection anymore. You're just looking for sort of like imagery or, or things like that to, to get you going. I think that would be problematic, too. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, and and. So we we use addiction really easily, I find, especially when it comes to sex and porn. And I get people saying, oh, my partner masturbates every day. (laughs) Isn't it addiction? And my partner, you know, and a lot of people do find that porn helps to arouse them, whether it be before they engage in partner sex to get things going so that they build their desire up to match their partners or that it just makes masturbation flow a little bit more easily. And again, the benchmark is, is it getting in the way? Is it getting in the way of you connecting with your partner? Are you choosing to always have sex solo or watch porn because you find it more interesting? Or what if you need it? What if you can't unless you're, you know, your imagination is so corrupted that you actually need the pornography in order to even be on your own? Right. Yeah. And so is it interfering with your connection? Is it interfering with your attraction to your partner? Are you now expecting your partner to, you know, have intercourse standing on their head and, you know, for 20 hours at a time or whatever, right? Like there's unrealistic expectations sometimes and then, and then you feel like, oh, well, I can't have that in my partnership. Well, that you'd be hard pressed to find a partner who will live up to that, yeah. you know, or does it mean that you're no longer interested in hanging out with your friends even, right? Because you're watching porn, you're masturbating. And, and this applies to anything, whether it be exercise or sex or playing video games, whatever, right? Like, is it interfering in your life? Yep. One last quick question. Yes. Is there such a thing as too much masturbation? Oh, um, again, kind of like we said, like if you are getting, if it's getting in the way, but you know, I would say if you are concerned that your partner is masturbating too much, yeah. that's often, you know, what comes up, you know, or you're worried maybe, you know, it's a time to reflect. Okay. So are we having the connection that we want? Are we having the time together that we want? Are we having the kind of sex that works for us? Sometimes it means that we are avoiding a really hard conversation. You know what? Sex isn't fulfilling for me. It's easier for me to masturbate. 
sometimes I don't I don't feel like I'm into it. Okay, so what what do you need to be into it, right? It can be an easy way to avoid a conversation. So that's also when it's more it's not about the frequency necessarily. It's more about the quality of your connection and whether you're actually speaking up for what your needs are in terms of partner sex rather than just avoiding it. That makes good sense. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's always a pleasure. Next month, you're going to tell us all about communicating sexual desire. Mm-hmm. We've got to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss belly inflammation on the tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Nadia Rizzo graduated from the University of Windsor in 2011, where she completed a thesis in psychology that revolved around the connections between lifestyle factors, stress, and health. She then went on to attend the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine, where she completed her board certificate mid-pregnancy in 2016. And in 2019, she published a book entitled Eat Your Way to Sexy, She's a thriving naturopathic doctor who focuses on understanding her clients as a whole being. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm honored to be here. So the regular listeners to my show know that I have struggled with my weight my entire life. And the way I'm built, I carry a lot of weight around the middle, which is the way a lot of people are. But that has health implications. And you're here to discuss that today, right? Yeah. So let's start with why losing weight around the belly as opposed to just losing weight in general is so important. So something I always like to bring to people's attention that I find a lot of people aren't aware of and that isn't being talked about enough is that a lot of times what we think is going on in the midsection, it's often misperceived as belly fat when actually it's inflammation in the gut. Okay. So I always like to start there because I feel like it is a gap that is in desperate need of being filled, and that's kind of my mission. (laughs) Okay, so are you talking about bloating that's caused by inflammation, and people appear that they have like a bigger midsection? Yes, but also at times people actually don't feel as though they're necessarily bloated. They think that that's just their body, which is how I felt, even pre-pregnancy. And it wasn't until I went on my own journey with the inflammation and the gut health that I realized it's actually not always belly fat. It's actually inflammation in the gut. But sometimes it's belly fat too. It can be, yeah. It can be a combination of both as well, for sure. Okay, so why do people struggle with losing weight around the middle? What's it tied to? I'm going (laughs) to come right back to what I had just explored. I really think it's, it's because of the inflammation. The problem with the gut, here's the thing, right? So I've, I've seen so many people with this too. You can do all the crunches in the world. Yeah. You can make sure you are having a clean diet, quote unquote clean diet. Yeah. And you can be going to the gym. Yep. But abs are made in the kitchen, not the gym. And that's because what you are eating can be inducing inflammation in your gut. So you can do all the crunches you want to do. If you aren't addressing the source of what's going on, nothing is going to fix it. Okay. So how do we do that? What do we do? So with inflammation in the gut, 
The way I explore this is with food sensitivities. Okay. So a sensitivity is not to be mistaken with an allergy. So an allergy is something where your life can be threatened. If you think of the idea of an EpiPen, you think of someone... Anaphylaxis. Anaphylaxis, right? It's a life-threatening situation. With food sensitivities, it's not that you're going to die, but your quality of life is going to be compromised, and you are probably not going to be feeling so well. The interesting thing, however, is that we go through life functioning this way because most people aren't aware that this is happening in their bodies, as I was unaware before that this was happening in my own body. And it isn't until we actually explore that aspect and get to the root cause of what's going on and actually change how we feel that we go, oh, wow, I actually wasn't functioning at optimal level. Oh, wow, that actually wasn't normal. Oh, wow, I actually, even though I was performing at my job or in school and I was doing well, I actually did have brain fog and never knew it. I always say people don't understand or really have never known what it actually feels like to function at optimal capacity until they get to the root cause of the inflammation in their body. Okay, so if we can't necessarily note or feel the inflammation, how do we know that we have it? Like, are there physical manifestations of the inflammation that would trigger us to let us know that we have an inflamed gut? Right. So this is where it gets a little um, overlapped because what happens is, as I had mentioned, we will kind of go through life and think that this is normal or this is how we feel, right? So it isn't until we are detoxing ourselves of those substances and then we reintroduce them that we will get a more pronounced reaction. So at times, people will come in and say to me, you know, Dr. Nadia, um, I feel bloated or I feel like something's off. A very common complaint is I don't have enough energy or I'm tired. I would like to have more energy. So this is something that is so common and it can be attributed to so many factors. So it often goes unidentified as a potential variable with inflammation. Okay, so somebody comes into your office and they're explaining their symptomology to you. Sure. What are the symptoms that you're going to hear about that are going to suggest to you that it's an inflammation issue, inflammation of the gut? So to preface that, I would say we always rule out other things as well. So okay. we would do our lab testing. We would do a full you know, physical exam. I would be looking at everything. I'm not going to just jump and say, well, I think you have a food sensitivity and not explore anything else. That would be negligent. Right. So, of course, we're going to do the full workup. However, oftentimes I find what comes down to it, once we have ruled out other things or we have managed other things, thyroid imbalances, other digestive issues, things like that, any nutrient depletions going on or side effects from any substances they might be taking. After we have done our full workup, then we will explore the role of inflammation and food sensitivities. So does inflammation impact weight retention and weight gain? Definitely. And my favorite time of exploring this is when the person plateaus. Okay. This isn't something that I'm going to say, oh, you want to lose weight? Let's start here. Right. We're going to start with the building blocks because actually exploring your inflammation and food sensitivities can be overwhelming, especially if you don't have the right support. It's widely unknown. It's not common knowledge and it's a big undertaking to go through something like the elimination diet. So you'd want to make sure someone has the building blocks in place with other parts of their diet, with other stress uh, management, with stress management regimes and things of that nature. 
before you would jump into something like that. But my favorite time to introduce this is when the person comes in and says, I have done everything. I made so much progress. And I hear this so much. I made so much progress. I lost so many pounds. I'm doing so great. And I have been stuck, stuck for the last three months. And I don't know what to do. And they're frustrated. Right. And a lot of people would recommend sort of eating at different times of the day or eating a vegan or vegetarian lifestyle, but you're not necessarily suggesting that, right? You're saying that it's the inflammation that needs to be dealt with, right? If there's one thing that I definitely do not adhere to is a cookie cutter approach that one diet fits all. Okay. What does a food elimination program look like briefly? Like what do you do for somebody who's never heard of it before? What does it entail? So it entails going through three to four weeks of eliminating certain foods and then in a very systematic way, bringing them back. Okay. The important thing here is the list is very long. So if someone is feeling overwhelmed, which is understandable, I will have them do a mini version. So we're not eliminating as many things because I understand it can be a big undertaking and I want it to be something that they're successful with rather than setting them up for an overwhelming experience. Okay. So if I'm on a food elimination program, what am I eating? Like, are there foods that are just generally, are you limit, are you starting ground zero? Like no foods and you're just having water? Oh gosh, no. Okay. So (laughs) so, I'm I'm asking, so what does it look like? There is still chicken and turkey and other fish. So it's just, there's no red meat. There's no gluten. There's no dairy. There's no sugar. Of course, we are eliminating certain fruits and we are also eliminating certain vegetables. So the nightshades are eliminated. Tomatoes. Like tomatoes, and... zucchini, okay. mushrooms, things like that. But there is actually a huge host of things you can still eat. If you think about chicken and all the different ways you can do chicken. If you yeah. think about rice and all the different ways you can do rice. If you think about the brassicas, broccoli, cauliflower, you think about kale, arugula, those are all things you can still eat. There's actually a ton of things when you think about it and when you actually go through the experience with the right support that you see, it's actually doesn't have to be overwhelming. Okay. So what sorts of things do you see? So when people eliminate and then they add back in and they have an adverse reaction to it, what's happening? Is it bloating? Is it diarrhea? Like what happens when you reintroduce? So it can be different for different people and for the same person bringing back different foods, the experience can be different. So a very common one, sure, is bloating. Another one is headaches. Mm -hmm. And even for someone, that was actually one of my symptoms, for someone who never experienced headaches, it wasn't a thing for me. And then bringing dairy back in and having the worst headache I had ever experienced in my life. So it's very interesting that People are manifesting different things. Skin things are very common, different rashes or things going on with the skin, their skin on their face, the appearance, having breakouts, that's very common. Mm -hmm. Having fatigue, lethargy in general. So it depends on the person, but those are some of the common ones that I see in my practice. If somebody were interested in trying a fruit elimination program and wanted more information about it, how could they reach out to you? They could go to my website at www.nadiarizzo.com. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, George Barakat, Roxandra Mitria, Carlisle Jansen, and Dr. Nadia Rizzo, ND. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can follow us at The Tonic Talk Show on Instagram or Facebook. 
For great articles written by Carlisle Jansen, George Barakat, and amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. Tonic's available free on racks at over 200 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in 11 choice neighbourhoods in Toronto. Or you can visit our website at tonictoronto.com. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can email me at janie at tonictoronto.com. Next week on the show, we'll discuss the natural treatment of women's health issues, designing a home for seniors, eating or drinking your calories, and how the right effort will lead to health success. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. Please consult a healthcare professional before starting any diet, exercise, supplementation, or medication program. This has been a paid announcement. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.